Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Historicism, an essay by C.S. Lewis. Part 2. The close connection which some see between Christianity and historicism thus seems to me to be largely an illusion. There is no prima facie case in its favor on such grounds as that. We are entitled to examine it on its merits. What appears on Christian premises to be true in the historicist's position is this. Since all things happen either by the divine will, or at least by the divine permission, it follows that the total content of time must in its own nature be a revelation of God's wisdom, justice, and mercy. In this direction, we can go as far as Carlyle or Novalis or anyone else. History is, in that sense, a perpetual evangel, a story written by the finger of God. If, by one miracle, the total content of time were spread out before me, and if, by another, I were able to hold all that infinity of events in my mind, and if, by a third, God were pleased to comment on it so that I could understand it, then, to be sure, I could do what the historicist says he is doing. I could read the meaning, discern the pattern. Yes, and if the sky fell, we should all catch larks. The question is not what could be done under conditions never vouchsafed us in via, nor even, so far as I can remember, promised us in patria, but what can be done now under the real conditions. I do not dispute that history is a story written by the finger of God, but have we the text? It would be dull work discussing the inspiration of the Bible if no copy of it had ever been seen on earth. We must remind ourselves that the word history has several senses. It may mean the total content of time, past, present, and future. It may mean the content of the past only, but still the total content of the past, the past as it really was in all its teeming riches. Thirdly, it may mean so much of the past as is discoverable from surviving evidence. Fourthly, it may mean so much as has been actually discovered by historians working, so to speak, at the face. The pioneer historians never heard of by the public who make the actual discoveries. Fifthly, it may mean that portion and that version of the matter so discovered which has been worked up by great historical writers. This is perhaps the most popular sense. History usually means what you read when you are reading Gibbon or Momsen or the Master of Trinity. Sixthly, it may mean that vague, composite picture of the past which floats, rather hazily, in the mind of the ordinary educated man. When men say that history is a revelation, or has a meaning, in which of these six senses do they use the word history? I am afraid that, in fact, they are very often thinking of history in the sixth sense, in which case their talk about revelation or meaning is surely unplausible in the extreme. For history, in the sixth sense, is the land of shadows, the home of wraiths like primitive man, or the Renaissance, or the ancient Greeks and Romans. It is not at all surprising, of course, that those who stare at it too long should see patterns. We see pictures in the fire. 
The more indeterminate the object, the more it excites our mythopoeic, or esemplastic, faculties. To the naked eye, there is a face in the moon. It vanishes when you use a telescope. In the same way, the meanings or patterns discernible in history, sense 6, disappear when we turn to history in any of the higher senses. They are clearest for each of us in the periods he has studied least. No one who has distinguished the different senses of the word history could continue to think that history, in the sixth sense, is an evangel or a revelation. It is an effect of perspective. On the other hand, we admit that history, in sense one, is a story written by the finger of God. Unfortunately, we have not got it. The claim of the practicing historicist then will stand or fall with his success in showing that history in one of the intermediate senses, the first being out of reach and the sixth useless for his purpose, is sufficiently close to history in the first sense to share its revealing qualities. We drop, then, to history in sense two, the total content of past time as it really was in all its richness. This would save the historicist if we could reasonably believe two things. First, that the formidable omission of the future does not conceal the point or meaning of the story. And, secondly, that we do actually possess history, sense two, up to the present moment. But can we believe either? It would surely be one of the luckiest things in the world if the content of time up to the moment at which the historicist is writing happened to contain all that he required for reaching the significance of total history. We ride with our backs to the engine. We have no notion what stage in the journey we have reached. Are we in Act 1 or Act 5? Are our present diseases those of childhood or senility? If, indeed, we knew that history was cyclic, we might perhaps hazard a guess at its meaning from the fragment we have seen. But then we have been told that the historicists are just the people who do not think that history is merely cyclic. For them, it is a real story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. But a story is precisely the sort of thing that cannot be understood till you have heard the whole of it. Or... If there are stories, bad stories, whose later chapters add nothing essential to their significance, and whose significance is therefore contained in something less than the whole, at least you cannot tell whether any given story belongs to that class until you have at least once read it to the end. Then, on a second reading, you may omit the Deadwood in the closing chapters. I always now omit the last book of War and Peace. But we have not yet read history to the end. There might be no dead wood. If it is a story written by the finger of God, there probably isn't. And if not, how can we suppose that we have seen the point already? No doubt there are things we can say about this story even now. We can say it is an exciting story, or a crowded story, or a story with humorous characters in it. The one thing we must not say is what it means or what its total pattern is. But even if it were possible, which I deny, to see the significance of the whole from a truncated text, it remains to ask whether we have that truncated text. 
Do we possess, even up to the present date, the content of time as it really was in all its richness? Clearly not. The past, by definition, is not present. The point I am trying to make is so often slurred over by the unconcerned admission, of course we don't know everything, that I have sometimes despaired of bringing it home to other people's minds. It is not a question of failing to know everything. It is a question, at least as regards quantity, of knowing next door to nothing. Each of us finds that in his own life every moment of time is completely filled. He is bombarded every second by sensations, emotions, thoughts, which he cannot attend to for multitude, and nine-tenths of which he must simply ignore. A single second of lived time contains more than can be recorded, and every second of past time has been like that for every man that ever lived. The past, I am assuming in the historicist's favor, that we need consider only the human past, in its reality, was a roaring cataract of billions upon billions of such moments, any one of them too complex to grasp in its entirety, and the aggregate beyond all imagination. By far the greater part of this teeming reality escaped human consciousness almost as soon as it occurred. None of us could, at this moment, give anything like a full account of his own life for the last twenty-four hours. We have already forgotten. Even if we remembered, we have not time. The new moments are upon us. At every tick of the clock, in every inhabited part of the world, an unimaginable richness and variety of history falls off the world into total oblivion. Most of the experiences in the past as it really was were instantly forgotten by the subject himself. Of the small percentage which he remembered, and never remembered with perfect accuracy, a smaller percentage was ever communicated even to his closest intimates. Of this, a smaller percentage still was recorded. Of the recorded fraction, only another fraction has ever reached posterity. Ad nos vix tenuis fame per labitur aura. To us, scarcely a thin air of repute. When once we have realized what the past as it really was means, we must freely admit that most, that nearly all, history, in sense too, is and will remain wholly unknown to us. And if, per impossibile, the whole were known, it would be wholly unmanageable. To know the whole of one minute in Napoleon's life would require a whole minute of your own life. You could not keep up with it. If these fairly obvious reflections do not trouble the historicist, that is because he has an answer. Of course, he replies, I admit that we do not know and cannot know, and indeed don't want to know, all the mass of trivialities which filled the past as they fill the present. Every kiss and frown, every scratch and sneeze, every hiccup and cough. But we know the important facts. Now, this is a perfectly sound reply for a historian. I am not so clear that it will do for the historicist. You will notice that we are now already a long way from history in sense one, the total story written by the finger of God. First, we had to abandon the parts of that story which are still in the future. Now, 
it appears we have not even got the text of those parts which we call past. We have only selections, and selections which, as regards quantity, stand to the original text rather as one word would stand to all the books in the British Museum. We are asked to believe that from selections on that scale, men, not miraculously inspired, can arrive at the meaning or plan or purport of the original. This is credible only if it can be shown that the selections make up in quality for what they lack in quantity. The quality will certainly have to be remarkably good if it is going to do that. The important parts of the past survive. If a historian says this, I am not sure that most historians would, he means by importance, relevance to the particular inquiry he has chosen. Thus, if he is an economic historian, economic facts are for him important. If a military historian, military facts. And he would not have embarked on his inquiry unless he had some reason for supposing that relevant evidence existed. Important facts for him usually do survive because his undertaking was based on the probability that the facts he calls important are to be had. Sometimes he finds he was mistaken. He admits defeat and tries a new question. All this is fairly plain sailing. But the historicist is in a different position. When he says important facts survive, he must mean by the important, if he is saying anything to the purpose, that which reveals the inner meaning of history. The important parts of the past must for a Hegelian historicist be those in which absolute spirit progressively manifests itself. For a Christian historicist, those which reveal the purposes of God. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.